Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're here at a conference that is themed Balance, Harmony, Culture, Health. It's the National Tribal Public Health Summit. It's being held in Mystic Lake Casino and Resort in Prior Lake, Minnesota. If you've listened to some previous episodes, this is the uh, third in a series of programs that we're doing from this venue. And next to me is another expert from Indian country. Her name is Michelle Schulte. Michelle, it's great to have you with us. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. Michelle, you are uh, with a group called the Intertribal Council of Michigan. Tell us a little bit about what you do with that fine organization. Sure, yeah. So Intertribal Council of Michigan was first formed in 1968. It's a consortium of all the federally recognized tribes in Michigan and really was developed to help build capacity and um, unify the voices of tribal communities in the state and bring in the resources that they needed and, you know, be able to um, bring in programming and funding wh- where they're needed, especially around environmental services, health, and early childhood. Mm. And um, so my role has been a project director trying to help improve early childhood systems of tribal communities through a variety of different programs and capacities, including, you know, looking at early childhood education, health and community safety, and and getting all of those different aspects of of early childhood programming to work together. So you're not a newcomer in this area. You've been doing uh, project management and health education for quite a while. Isn't that the case? Oh, yeah. Yep. I've a Michigan certified teacher. I've worked as a health educator in a clinical setting, worked with students um, from early on all the way to college and just there's a lot of work to be done. One of the organizations that has had a big footprint in the healthcare arena and health education arena over the years is the Kellogg Foundation. Uh, they're based there in Michigan. I understand that you at one point had worked some with them as well as uh, with the Intertribal Council. Yeah, the Kellogg, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation had approached our tribal leaders at one point and said, you know, we we acknowledge that. Um, Private foundations have, haven't have had very good relationships with tribal communities, and there's a lot of opportunity for us to be able to work together and support each other. Um, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation is a huge advocate on early childhood issues in a number mm. of different areas. And they, in this approach, they're, they were looking for, you know, where are tribal priorities? We want to learn more about the communities and their needs, but we really don't know where to start. And so that's where I came into play, and we did us. We brought all twelve federally recognized tribes together, looked at the priorities that they had in early childhood, so zero to eleven years old, mm-hmm. and we looked at community safety, health, education, collected a, a ton of data, a, a whole lot of really, you know, good stories, important mm-hmm. stories that that really set the tone for where do we start that work. And um, it was a little overwhelming at first. Mm-hmm. And when we first started, we, we really looked at the early early education. So we tried, our, we tried most to get health, um, 
Head Start programs mm-hmm. to work with home visiting, to work with Healthy Start, and then bring in additional resources. Who are the partners that you could be working a little better with? Where are some training opportunities? Where is there additional funding that maybe federal or state funding has its limits that the Kellogg Foundation was able to help fill in the gaps? So you had a lot of experience in this arena before entering into some of the work you're doing today. Help some of our listeners really maybe get some enthusiasm for saying you can make a difference through programs and policies oh, yeah. that affect young people. Uh, tell us tell us some success stories that would inspire us. Well, before even taking on this work, I um, had, had worked as, a, as an educator um, when I was working in the, the public school system, one of the things that we saw that the school system that I worked in was a small, small district, about 500 students, K through 12, 52% of the students were Native American. And wow. when I was hired on, I was asked to, you know, help kind of revamp their Title Seven pro- or Title, Title I program and, you know, improve the system. Almost entirely the caseload was all Native American students. Mm. And if you have a student population that's 52% Native American, mm-hmm. that's completely disproportionate for who should be receiving services. And so we took a look at what we were doing. Um, we provided some training for the teachers as far as, you know, um, tools for the classroom. We did, we kind of improved the screening system for the students and, um, Took, a, took another look at evaluation and testing and were able to make some shifts in the program. Some of the things that really came out of that, we had a lot of Native American students who just, there was a lot going on at home. Mm-hmm. And at the schools, the administration and teachers aren't always aware of that. Mm-hmm. But living in the community, I was aware of some of those right. dynamics. And, you know, I had several com- confirma- conversations with teachers to say, you know, look, if you, you know, this student is not eligible for special ed or won't be eligible for special ed, they're brilliant when we do the screening. Look at the numbers mm-hmm. because, you know, just because they're not thriving in their classroom doesn't mean that they've given up or they're unmotivated or that they're just, you know, they, they need these services. Sometimes they need just that emotional social support too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and more times than not, the students wouldn't be eligible. And then the teachers would throw their hands up and be, you know, like, I don't know what else to do with them. I'm, uh-huh. I'm done. And they, they'd give up on the students. And so, you know, that's where we started that idea. Like there are more resources out here. If you make space in the classroom somewhere or find an empty classroom or an empty office and let, um, you know, the student is tribal. So let's talk to the tribal mental health services or the health clinic and see if they can bring somebody down here to work with the tribal students who are suffering or uh-huh. may have those issues. And, you know, it was just small changes like that, small shifts like that. The tribe that I worked in had a boys and girls club. And so um, they did a lot of after school and, you know, community education type sport for kids. And so the school eventually made space for them to come in after school and really enhance the after school programming, not just for the native students, but all of the students, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. everything we do, everybody's involved because these are our neighbors. These are our families. Mm-hmm, we support mm-hmm. each other. And within three years time, um, at that time, uh, Michigan's standardized testing was called the MEEPS and, um, Within three years' time, our Native students started outscoring our non-Native students on this standardized test across the board in every that, grade. And before that? And before that, that's unheard of. And if you look nationally at assessment scores, you know, just education assessment scores, 
typically Native students really, really struggle in those those type of assessments. So, I mean, it just says a lot about the importance of collaboration and breaking down silos and pulling in resources that you might not have been aware were there or that you haven't wanted to work with in the past. Well, you've really got all our interests. We've heard the outcome very clearly, but I'm still trying to understand what changed. Are you saying that these children were emotionally needy because of social challenges maybe in their home environment, and so you brought in other elders or other people that were uh, role models, or, or what was the what was the dynamic? Yeah, it was all of that. It was just kind of looking outside of, you know, those four walls of the classroom or that that the four walls of the institution, the school itself, and looking for new partners. Who uh-huh. are the resources out there, and what's really going on with these children? You know, some of them come from homes that are very broken. There uh-huh. might be domestic violence, substance abuse. Um, the, the one student in particular who was really, you know, a, a sentimental one for me, you know, his grandparents were picking up the slack and he was in second grade and his sister was in fourth grade. And if she didn't cook dinner for her and her younger siblings at night, they didn't eat. And, and nobody was aware of that because the families, you know, they're, they don't want to share that. They don't want people to know, you know, the, the effects of historical trauma and, Mm -hmm you know, formal policies of taking kids away is just too real and scary. And some of them, they just, they need a lot of help. So, um, you know, rather than continuing to break the families, let's support them. Let's bring in the resources. So So I'm thinking in terms of maybe others that are listening in, they're from different uh, tribes. Maybe someone who's tuning in is in a situation, just like you mentioned, they uh, maybe they're raising a grandchild, and they say, we don't know what this child needs. They're not doing well in school. What can they bring back to the school, or what could a tribal council person who's listening to the program or a uh, health director or someone who's working in the school system? I hear the message, uh, Michelle. I hear you saying, well, you got to think outside the box. you got to bring in other players. But I'm still trying to get at what are some of the concrete things that might be brought in by other community members. Do you see what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I I think a lot of it is getting to know your students a little bit better Mm -hmm. instead of instead of giving up on them and saying, you know, oh, it's it's got to be this or that is looking at those four aspects of of who we are as human beings. You know, we have a social, emotional, physical and we have a spiritual. And I think sometimes in the education system, we're so focused on the intellectual and the performance that we forget about those other areas. Mm -hmm. And so when you recognize that, okay, who what players can fill those roles? And and if anything, you know, as an administrator or a teacher, put yourself in that role as a human being. You know, mm-hmm. what are your needs? Who do you go to? You know, what resources do you pull in when, mm-hmm. when you're feeling like you need a little more um, spiritual support or mm-hmm. emotional support? Or if you're struggling with depression, where do you go? To be prepared for education, you have to do that. So, yeah, we did some pulling in elders who would mm-hmm. come in and do presentations. And even if the presentation is more academic, educational, historical, whatever, mm-hmm. just having those folks in the classroom mm-hmm. that the students can identify with was really, really important. Mm-hmm. You know, they could go up and get a quick hug from their auntie or their mm-hmm. uncle or their Misho grandfather who was in there speaking and get the history. Um There was also, you know, the new partnerships with working with the health centers or the behavioral health centers and meeting the staff that was there. Um, A lot of times those services are underutilized and families can't get to their appointments. And so um, making space in the classroom or in the school somewhere, you know, other programming, if, if it's a youth program outside of a school, bringing those folks and inviting them and having space for them to do their work and, nice. and have appointments was important. 
Um, another aspect was um, sharing funding sometimes, you know, if there's a valuation or curriculum that would enhance what students are doing. The school also went through a big behavior management um, change. They had a new system that they wanted to employ. So, you know, it's building that kind of capacity too. What what skills do people at the tribe have or training that they've already gone through that we can share in those other systems? Mm-hmm. And we think it's all unrelated, but, you know, you really spread the load of the work across people and mm-hmm. you can get more done that way. Um, there were language programs in the community that, you know, had had its ups and downs and then, you know, being able to incorporate that in the classroom or finding teachers that during the summertime when they need to do their um, continuing ed hours, they would do those in the Head Start programs and get to know the students before they came to kindergarten and, you know, things like that. So a lot of sharing of of humans <laughs> across mm-hmm, programs mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. you know, one of those things. And it, I think the hard part is building those relationships. Um, you know, in some communities, there's there's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of they versus them or mm-hmm. they're not one of us. And um, But I think when it comes down to it, we all have the force four aspects in life. We're all looking for the same things. So, you know, it's important that we take that time to get to know each other and really what's at the heart of things and what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. I mean, that is such a great message. So really, I think it transcends a lot of what we've been talking about here at this conference, because sometimes we speak so much about the programs, the initiatives, the the team, that we can lose sight sometimes of the individuals that we're trying to help. You're making really a, a strong case for saying if you're trying to help Native youth, Native children, then just come close to those children. See what their needs are. See right. what resources you have in the community. Yeah. So that sounds like some of your early background in this area. You've transitioned from there to still have a focus on Native youth, but you're working in some other capacities. Just briefly tell us about that before we have to step away for a couple of minutes. Sure. Um, so I've also had some experience working as a health educator in a clinical setting. And with my educational background, I was able to also work with a lot of youth and, um, and families in trying to, you know, share messages of health and not just academics. And, and having that, ex- those two experiences really brought a lot of things together for me to improve on how how we focus on collaborating with each other and where are those pieces that bring us together. Well, we want to talk more about your work because I know right now, Michelle, you're doing especially a lot of work with uh, indigenous foods in Michigan. you got some great things happening there. We're going to give you some more lessons that you can take home that can make a difference wherever you're at in Indian country or even if you're not Native, some practical things that I think you will enjoy. We'll be coming back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. Stay tuned. We'll be back right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Emergency Medical Unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose. Across from me here at the convention venue for the National Tribal Public Health Summit is Michelle Schulte. Michelle, you've been talking with us about some of the lessons that you've learned in working with especially Native youth in Michigan. You're in a little bit different position now, and you're especially working with uh, tribal foods, indigenous foods. Tell us a little bit about that program. So the, the name of the project is the Michigan Tribal Food Access Collaborative. It's currently being funded by the Michigan Health Endowment Fund, and it really stems from a lot of other collaborative work that we're doing. And we're taking a focus on traditional foods and food access for families, especially children with, or families of children 11 to 0, year, year, zero to 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, with that, we're looking, we, we did an assessment of all the tribes that are involved. We did a community assessment profile where we looked at where families are, are getting their, their healthy fritz, fresh fruits, vegetables, good meats, you know, where, where are they getting their food? And a lot of our tribes, as, as they are in, across the country, are considered to be in areas where there are food deserts. You mm-hmm. know, families can't walk or drive within a 10-minute radius to get something healthy, and so they rely on snack foods or, you know, packaged foods, things that are completely processed. Is there a, a definition that's accepted in the public health community of a food desert? You mentioned this 10 minutes. Is that an accepted? There's, there's, a, few different, there's a few different definitions that I've seen, you know, something within a mile, some within a 10-minute drive or a uh-huh. walk. Um, so basically, you're dealing with a lot of people who don't have real easy access to healthy food choices. Right. Yep. Exactly. Um, and and that's the that's the key to it, you know. And that's mm-hmm. really what we're focused on. Um, so, and the other part of the project too is looking at pediatric obesity, mm-hmm. as um, and and our children being screened. And what we're finding in this project is that 
only, none of the tribes that we were working with even have a pediatrician on staff, which is okay. very typical across Indian country. Um, and of those providers that are there, whether it's a PA, a doctor, the nurses, not all of them are up to date on pediatric obesity mm -hmm. and what are the, sc the current screening techniques. Um, often people use BMIs, which aren't the best indicator for a lot of a lot of folks. You know, mm -hmm. um, it doesn't always take into into account bone structure mm -hmm. and you know all the all those kinds of things, athleticism or or lack of, and. Um, so we're looking at different indicators to try to improve that and try to continue that screening across. We know that obesity is an is a you know it can be it can be an indicator of future issues with diabetes mm -hmm. and different kinds of cancers and things like that. So this is just one of those other areas that we're looking at making change and trying to improve the health of children and families. So what are they finding is a good indicator for obesity? What kind of numbers or measurements are they looking at? That's We're still early on in the project, and those are the kinds of things that we're working on now. Mm -hmm. um, we've done, besides the community profiles of the food access, we're working with providers right now. That's that's kind of our, our goals in looking at how they're screening. And we're finding that a lot of our providers are creative in trying to look at a number of different indicators. And they're looking at the, the best indicator that they have is looking at um, growth and development over time. So mm -hmm. BMI is one aspect of that. But what else is there? Is there food insecurity involved? Because we know that that'll be a predictor. Um, they're looking at family health and, um, you know, physical activity and things like that. So they, they're pulling in multiple tools and assessments mm -hmm. and screenings to, to make that, to make that um, assessment. Now, there's a really interesting uh, dialogue that comes out of this. So am I hearing you right, Michelle, that if someone is in a situation of, of food insecurity, they're not sure whether they're going to have a next meal or not, they're more likely to overeat and be overweight? Is that what I'm hearing? Sometimes, but sometimes it's also the quality of the food that they're getting. Mm. You know, um, we have a lot of families who, um, you know, they may be getting the, the amount of calories that that they need for a day, but they're not getting the nutritional value. Mm. So, you know, that can lead to overweight and obesity issues too, you know. So in other words, if you're buying all your food from the, the gas station or the convenience store, you might be getting a lot of chips and high fat, low nutrient right. density foods right. that contribute to weight, not health. Right, right. So you're in this project, you're also working with a team at the Intertribal Council of Michigan. My listeners have heard of, um, of your organization, ITCMI. They've heard the abbreviation because we've had uh, some other folks who've represented you. But I think a lot of individuals, if they're not in Michigan, they hear about an organization. They say, what is this, two people, three people? Is it a big group? <laughs> I mean, give us an idea of the scope of, of your organization. Yeah, we have well over... Oh, gosh, I don't even want to put a number to it. I know it's it's more than 50 people. And okay. we have um, some folks that work out of our main office, which is in Sault Ste. Marie, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. But a lot of our folks are stationed, placed in different places throughout Michigan, including mm -hmm. working directly with some of the tribes. Um, the tribes often have limited capacity mm -hmm. to be able to provide services, do evaluation, or even training. And so sometimes that's where we kind of help um, by facilitating that, you know, some of our funding allows us to have staff that, even though they work for intertribal council, they're uh, embedded right in the tribal communities themselves and work directly for the tribes. Mm -hmm. So help me to understand someone outside of Michigan. I mean, it's obvious you're serving Michigan tribes, but 
where would someone who's listening to this show, say in the Southwest, maybe they're listening in Alaska or the Southeast or, I mean, anywhere mm -hmm. throughout the North America, why might they want to go to your website or communicate with you folks? So our website, Intertribal Council of Michigan, it's itcmi.org. Um, we try to provide a lot of resources across the different programs that we're doing. We, we hope that it will be like a central, you know, kind of storage bank for people. We, we try to provide a lot of the data that we've collected across programs, which is really important. We know that state and federal data is often skewed or misrepresented, mm -hmm. underrepresented. And so we provide that for not just our tribal folks, but other folks to take a look at and um, be able to use in their programming and development. We also have a number of digital stories. Um, mm. We help facilitate Head Start programs, home visiting, Healthy Start, the National Native Network, we're a member of that, and so all of our work is kind of put up there as uh, a resource directory for people to tap into. And any of the trainings that we provide, you know, we're happy to share with people. Mm -hmm. It's it's not about, um, you know, it's it, it's not about us collecting this as much as it is getting it out there and trying to get it into as many hands as we can because, you know, with limited capacity that we all have, with limited funds, you know, if somebody's already done it, why recreate the wheel? Mm -hmm. And so we're mm -hmm. happy to share. Digital stories have become very popular in many places in Indian country. What would someone find in the way of digital stories if they went to your website? Oh, we have a huge range of different stories. We have a substance abuse department that has done an amazing job collecting the stories of people who have had a number of different challenges mm. and overcome them. Tremendous. There are some on the traditional foods, you know, traditional food versus versus cultural food mm -hmm. and what that means for an individual as far as making, you know, change and finding your identity and even just how you eat. It doesn't have to be all ceremony, but sometimes understanding that part and just having that connection to good food and to the land and the environment. We also have a number of stories on the early education programming that we've been doing with Head Start and the development of children and um, and and the Head Start staff even or the home visiting staff and and the work that they've been doing and the successes that they've seen. Smoke free, you know, becoming smoke free. We have stories of of people who have you know accomplished a lot of different things in, based on the challenges that they faced in life. You brought up a, an interesting subject. I mean, a number of them, Michelle. But one is this, uh, is there a difference between traditional and cultural foods? How do, you, how do you break that down for someone? Yeah, so traditional foods are those foods that have been with us since we've attached ourselves to the land or the environment. Those are the, the plants and the animals and the fish and all those gifts from creation itself. They, they sustained us all through time before colonization, and they've always been here for us. They become part of our natural diet and even our biology. The cultural foods are those that over history have been introduced from, you know, um, fry bread, for example, mm -hmm. is, is one of those cultural foods that it's not really traditional and it's not as high in nutrients mm -hmm. as our traditional foods might be, but they've been something that's accepted and we see it at, a, you know, different feasts and things like that, or it's, you know, it's, it's what people expect to have, but it may not be the best choice for people either. So it seems like one of the challenges, if I'm reading between the lines correctly, Michelle, is to try to help people realize just because something is part of their culture at present doesn't mean that their elders historically use those foods. Correct. Yep. And from a public health standpoint or even a personal health standpoint, 
it seems as we look at indigenous foods, it was often those things that had been really tried and true over the centuries that often give the best health. So whether it's the, the corns and the beans and the squash or, or those other, you know, more basic foods, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those, they're so nutrient dense. They're things that have always cared for us. They're the things we've had the most relationship with and those will sustain us into the future. Now, I know you've got a great wealth of resources when it comes to food options and food choices in Indian country. Some folks may want to contact you. How's the best way to do that? Um, my email address is mschulte at itcmi.org, M-S-C-H-U-L-T-E at itcmi.org. And we also have an organizational website, which is at itcmi.org, where we have a resource directory with a lot of different types of information about our programming, digital stories, and more. Great. So as long as I can remember, the Intertribal Council of Michigan. Correct. <laughs> ITCMIforMichigan.org. That's right. I'm in business. You bet. That's true of you, too, if you're tuning into American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We've got more coming up from the National Tribal Public Health Summit. Some other great guests. Don't miss the second half of our show coming up right after this. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live united. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose from the venue of the National Tribal Public Health Summit. We are here in Mystic Lake Casino and Resort in Prior Lake, Minnesota. And across from me, another guest. This time it's Soheb Arif. Soheb, it's great to have you with us. It's good to be here. One of the wonderful things about going to conferences like this is I meet people from all over the country, all over the world sometimes, even people in my own backyard. So I've actually been in your offices. You work for the California Rural Indian Health Board, not far from me in Northern California, right? Yes. But we'd never met until today. I've heard of your name, but I've never actually seen you in person, so it's good to be here. Well, I've had the privilege of working with your colleagues, and it's great to have you here in our virtual studio at the exhibit hall. You have a fascinating background, and it really has connected you with indigenous peoples, I want to say in the Americas, but really all over the world. Tell tell us a little bit about your story and how you came into public health. Okay, so I uh, come from Pakistan. I was um, I moved here when I was 13. I come from a village named Ugi. Um, and, uh, I come from a background of farmers. Um, my previous generations were farmers. I was a farmer for 13 years when I was there. Okay. We grew all sort of things, uh, starting from cotton, wheat, um, and tobacco. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, that's how, um, I kind of became interested in native health and my background living in a village uh, with a lot of health disparities, as mm-hmm. you can imagine. Uh, hospitals being three to four hours away, wow. uh, people getting um, sick and then developing even more severe problems because of that. Uh, chronic disease, uh, never being taken care of that. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the reasons that got me interested in health and especially public health. And there's so many commonalities between your experience, experience of, of other students, young people like you as you come to the country when you're 13. We've had many Native youth on the show or Native mm-hmm. educational institutions and one of the challenges that people know about in Indian country is even if a young person wants to get further education, to mm-hmm. go away, to go to a university, especially if there isn't a strong network of support for a First Nations student, mm-hmm. they may just feel lost. There may be some degree of uh, emotional, mental trauma. Mm-hmm. Was that something that, that you sensed or you experienced in, in your uh, transition? Certainly. Uh, I mean, coming from a place where I knew everyone in the village and then coming over here not knowing anyone, mm. not really having um, role models other than, you know, my family um, and not seeing people of, uh, you know, that look like me uh-huh. in institutions, that's that that's discouraging. Um, and I can relate to Native youth in a sense that there's not that many resources out there for um, people with lower socioeconomic status, um, not having enough uh not just resources as um, people, but also not having enough financial resources. That's a huge problem. I started working when I was a sophomore year, um, when I was a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I started my business uh, with my brother, um, started working at a flea market, selling everything to okay. anything. Uh-huh. Um, and I did that until I started grad school. Um, uh-huh. So every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I would be there uh-huh. uh, doing that. And then that's how I paid for my education. And that's really hard. And I can see that a lot of Native youth, you know, they're not just doing one thing. They're doing a lot of other things mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, they're taking care of their family. Right. Um, they're living in a rural place. It's hard for them to get to college. It's hard for them to even sometimes finish school because they're doing so many other things. Mm-hmm. And that can really take a toll on you. Um, and I can relate to that. So you had that background, Soheb, and you said, no, I want to get further education. Mm-hmm. I want to go into public health. Mm-hmm. Right now you're working with... Uh, 
a group that has a lot of visibility mm -hmm. in Indian country and in the public health community, the California Rural Indian Health Board. Tell us, first of all, a little bit about that organization and then what your role is there. Mm -hmm. So California Rural Indian Health Board, we are, you know, um, in California, uh, uh -huh. and we uh, provide technical assistance, uh, any kind of service, um, health-related, advocacy-related to the California tribes or the tribal health programs, whatever it is, we try to get out there and uh, provide uh, whatever support uh, we can. Uh, we specialize in health, um, but we do work in other um, areas uh, too where um, something that could potentially um, affect the health of Native people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, policy. Um, that's mostly our executive branch, but I work in the research and public health department where we see chronic disease uh, mostly, uh, and we try to mitigate some of those, uh, you know, uh, crises that are happening in our community. I myself work in um, chronic disease prevention, um, tobacco cessation, and also cancer prevention. Um, and that's a pretty uh, broad position. I manage some of those programs. And um, mostly we try to get to the communities and try to see what they need and provide assistance to them in whatever way or shape possible. So let's talk about cancer prevention mm -hmm. because there's been a lot said about cancer in Indian country. In a lot of populations, people say, at least if you talk with people in, on a reservation or in a tribal community, they'll say there's an awful lot of our elders that are having cancer. Is it just a perception or is it reality that there seems to be a disproportionate burden of suffering falling on Native Americans when it comes to cancer? Yeah, from the data we've seen and from the people that we've met, that seems to be the case. We've gone to a lot of different communities to do focus groups, for example, even HPV, um, and when we talk to them, um, it always, you know, in one way or shape, it gets turned around to cancer, you know. Mm -hmm. They will talk about, oh, you know, uh, we're, we're doing this, but at the end of the day, what are we doing about cancer? Mm. Uh, what can we do? A lot of our community doesn't know the causes of the cancer and what to do when cancer actually does enter the community. California Native tribes haven't really been uh, highly funded to do cancer prevention work. Mm -hmm. uh, this is... Um, Recently, we got a grant to do um, cancer control work in California from CDC, but this is our first time, and our sister organization, Northwest Portland Area Indian Health Board, I think they've been doing this for 14 years. Okay. So some of other communities have been doing this work for a long time where we just initially started this work. So uh, it's going to take a little bit longer for us to you know, get to the same level, but you know, we're trying whatever we can do through collaboration and listening to other people mm -hmm. and how we can impact them in that way. So let's talk some, first of all, about this grant. So it's coming through the Centers for Disease Control, mm -hmm. the CDC, and they're actually funding the California Rural Indian Health Board. Now, are you using that, those, that funding centrally, or are you dispersing those funds to the tribe, tribes? How are that working? So um, California Rural Indian Health Board, one of, our, uh, one of the things that we've always done uh, is in our mission is to make sure the funding always gets to the tribes mm -hmm. and the tribal health programs and to the people. Mm -hmm. So whenever we get these grants, we, you know, we have to have an administrative cost to, you know, do things at the organization. Right. But we try to get most of our funding to the tribes and the tribal health programs. And that's what we've done with this grant as well. We've given out about 10,000 um, uh, um, worth subcontracts. So that, that would be eight tribal health programs, they each got about $10,000. Oh, okay. Um, and I'm working with them, providing them with technical assistance, helping them develop work plans on, you know, on various strategies, uh -huh. which are called evidence-based interventions. I have picked them, 
you know, to be very broad strategies mm-hmm. because I don't know the East specific community. Right. So I work with them on identifying those, uh, you know, evidence-based interventions mm-hmm. and then they can decide what kind of activities they want to do from then on and, you know, help their community. Well, now this is great, a great topic mm-hmm. because anyone listening today, as we talk now, they're going to hear about evidence-based strategies that can impact cancer because you're going to tell us mm-hmm. some stories of different tribes and what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. So give us an example. What, what is, uh, and of course we're not mentioning tribes by name, but g- give me some examples of, of what tribes are doing to impact cancer in their communities. So, for example, tobacco, uh, commercial tobacco, mm-hmm. um, has been one of the main, um, you know, preventable causes of cancer and death in our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is one of the bigger focus in this grant as well. So, um, and that's, um, and it has a lot of interventions that can go in there. For example, um, provider reminders. Uh, what are we doing with our providers to help them to educate them, uh, so they can, uh, you know, become the main, uh, you know, preventative, you know, force in our communities? How are they recording that information? Um, how are they screening our patients? Are they culturally competent to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of, uh, you know, referrals are they making? What kind of, uh, you know, help they're providing in our community? So some of that's one of the main interventions that is uh, taking place in our communities. Um, we're working with the providers. We're helping them, you know, become better at cessation and uh, prevention uh, in tobacco. I can remember now actually quite a few years ago when something came out that really changed the dialogue as it related to cancer prevention, and mm-hmm. not just in tribal communities and communities in general, and that was the advent of the vaccine for hepatitis B. Mm-hmm. And those of us in the public health community realize that one of the long-term complications of hepatitis is cancer of the liver. Mm -hmm. So this was pretty revolutionary because here now we have a vaccine that, uh, that actually has the potential to prevent cancer. This is not the end of the story because other vaccines since that time have come out which hold promise for cancer prevention. Is that something also that is relevant, especially in the dialogue you're having with tribes? Most certainly. Um, actually, I think about three weeks ago, one of the clinics reached out to me and told me that they wanted to, you know, do happy work. Uh, and uh, not not that many people actually think of happy in relation to liver cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I thought about it, I was like, oh, wow, I actually know this, but I've never told some of my tribal health programs that this is some of the work that they can do. Mm. So they literally... Um, looked at their work plan and they modified it to include happy. So now they're working on, you know, happy screenings and everything they can do to prevent cancer from that realm. And um, if I remember the statistic uh, stats correctly, I think about 20% of the liver cancers can be tracked back to happy. Yeah, I think it depends where you are in yeah. the world. I know in, mm-hmm. in Asia, some of those numbers are, are, are much higher. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about the vaccine-preventable cancers mm-hmm. because there's been a lot of publicity more recently about the human papillomavirus, often just abbreviated HPV. HPV. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and why people are talking about that? So um, HPV, uh, we're not doing so much uh, of that work through CDC. Uh, we're doing a lot of that through the National Native Network, okay. uh, which is, you know, uh, funded through CDC. But, you know, uh, there's, I guess, a middle organization in, in between. Um, another one thing we're doing right now uh, at California Rural Indian Health Board is we're going to different communities and hosting focus groups uh-huh. to learn more about the knowledge, the belief, 
um, and what everyone thinks about HPV in their communities. And we've done quite a few of those. And um, we've learned that a lot of people in our communities don't know what HPV even is, mm. not to mention what their relationship HPV has with cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, um, a lot of stigma, you know, in some communities with HPV and um, sexual health. Um, and uh, there's actually very different beliefs in each community. We've gone to different communities and you would think that there would be a relationship between, you know, different communities and HPV. But uh, in some cases there is, but in more so, um, a lot of people uh, have different beliefs on it. So that's what we're trying to learn. And then we can provide some of these guidelines to CDC, uh, to the tribal communities and to the tribal health programs uh, about what people think about HPV. Um, But one thing we've actually learned uh, that is common in uh, a lot of uh, our communities is um, that if the provider recommends HPV with proper education to the patient um, or the patient's parent, um, they are more likely to get it. So um, I've actually seen this in a lot of uh, different uh, um, conferences I've gone to. One of the reason, one of the main reason people are not getting HPV vaccination is because the provider doesn't recommend it. We need to talk more about some of these things. Are mm-hmm. you? Is there any way you could stay by for our last segment? Yeah. Yeah, we've got to step away real quick. Dr. David DeRose with uh, Soheb Arif. We'll be back with more from the venue of the National Tribal Public Health Summit. Take a listen to this, and then we'll be back. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand, and someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose and with Soheb Arif from the venue of the National Tribal Public Health Summit in Minnesota. We're recording in May of 2018. So, Habe, you've been talking about some of the work that you and others at the California Rural Indian Health Board and other organizations are doing to make a difference with cancer in Indian country. I know you are also connected with the National uh, Native Health Network, correct? Yes, National Native Network. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the National Native Network and how that fits in with the work that you're doing. So National Native Network um, is run through Intertribal Council of Michigan, but we are distributed around the, the nation. You know, for example, we are in Alaska and, you know, we're in Michigan, but we're also in California as well. And we, although are connected, we understand that there is many differences in different communities, even, you know, two tribes next door to each other. Mm-hmm. So to um, address that, we try to, you know, be localized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why, you know, this network really does work because mm-hmm. we understand the problems at the local level and we work and listen, um, very important, listen to the mm-hmm. local communities and the tribes and the people uh, to work with them and, you know, to find a solution with them. What's uh, so challenging, I think, sometimes is there is so much information out there and really today, probably more than ever before, there's this big question of, of what information is trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Do you see that as being a big issue in the tribes that you work with? I actually do, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I've noticed is uh, even some of the official information that is put out by can sometimes not be trustworthy in some mm-hmm. of our communities uh, because of you know um, historical background. Uh-huh. Um, for example, some of our tribes... Um, or some of just a few members might not trust the, the information coming from the state or okay. even from the CDC or the federal government. Uh-huh. Um, but, um, but some of that information is useful, so we try our best to get the information that is needed by our people to them. And one great resource that we do have is uh, through the National Native Network. We have our, our website, which is keepitsacred.org. Uh-huh. Um, and... Through that website, we can communicate with all of our tribes and tribal health programs and provide them with the necessary information that is trustworthy and is traditional. Um, we have a lot of information on cancer prevention, uh, commercial tobacco prevention, healthy foods, and also on vaccination. Hmm. Vaccination is a topic that you know is highly controversial mm-hmm. in many communities and happens to be the case in our communities as well. So uh, we have a page on just... Literally, if you go under cancer, Mm -hmm. you can go to vaccination. And we have a very thorough page on vaccination. um, And it's very interactive. Uh, It's not, you know, just one page. Mm -hmm. Um, It's You can keep dragging it down. And it'll have webinars. It'll have Mm -hmm. speakers. It'll have information Mm -hmm. sheets. It will have people you can contact. It will have a lot of information, you know, that anyone can access. Mm -hmm. And that is our main focus, to provide real information Um, correct information, and easy-to-get information to our communities. I mean, this is great, and I know you've been making a big difference, Soheb, personally. I think your story is especially interesting because people throughout Indian country can relate. If they were listening from the top of the hour, you came from a 
very rural, indigenous background in rural Pakistan mm-hmm. and have come to the States, now entered into the public health arena. But a lot of people, you know, sometimes when I talk with them, they say, well, I want to go into health care. I don't know what I want to do. You're using public health both to make a difference, but you're also using it in your own life as kind of a springboard to a future career path. Tell us a little bit about what's happening in your life. Yes, because of my background, because of the health disparities that I've seen and experienced uh, in my communities and seen in you know the Native communities that I very much relate to uh, because I come from a village and uh, mm-hmm. I see very similar things happening in villages and uh, tribes in California. The themes keep occurring of you know health disparities and uh, access to medicine and access to care, access to healing. And uh, because of that, I, I went into public health. And because of that, I'm going into medicine now. And um, and I know a lot of our Native youth is interested in a similar path, but it's not easy to get to because of all the hurdles and all the jumps and the, the hoops that you have to go through. Mm-hmm. So I think we need strong role models uh, in our communities that are doctors, that are nurses, uh, that are PAs to influence and get together with our youth and tell them how that path works. Because mm-hmm. what you think you might have in a lot of you know urban areas, a lot of that role modeling doesn't always exist in our rural communities. No, this is a great example of basically saying, hey, I can give back right now. I can make a difference mm-hmm. in communities. But if I see opportunities opening up, mm-hmm. I can take the next step. Yeah. I've always liked the model of people doing something practical that they can use at every level of their educational Mm -hmm. experience. Because I know so many people, they have maybe a very long-term goal. Maybe they do want to go into a profession, Mm -hmm. but they do undergraduate work in some area that is not going to open up doors for a career path. And then they end up basically in a situation where they're saying, wow, what can I do? I don't have a job. I don't have finances to go on and get further education. So you've really kind of bridged that gap. And I think your story is a great one for people in Indian country and in other populations where you can make a difference and I assume saved up maybe a little bit of money for for future (laughs) education. Is that true? Yeah. So our main focus, especially for me and especially for a lot of people that I, you know, I work with in Indian country is to help our people, mm-hmm. you know, provide that healing, provide that information, that education that our community needs so much. Um, and it, it's, a, it's, it's a ladder. You, know, you have to take one step at a time. And sometimes you take that step and you stay there for a little bit. And you're trying to equip yourself with whatever resources uh, and whatever information and mechanisms to be a better person, to be a better person for your community. Uh, and that's what I've really tried to do with myself is... Uh, I, you know, I need to be a researcher. So I did biochemistry. I need to help the community, not just person. So I did public health, but mm-hmm. I also need to not just prevent, but also to provide healing. So mm-hmm. I go to medicine. So it's realization after realization and, you know, try to commit myself with as many tools as I can to help um, the community and the people. No, that's tremendous. Yeah. So I, I wish you success. You're going to be going to uh, medical school, I understand, in kind of the heart of Indian country and in mm-hmm. Arizona, right? Yes. And... And it would be such an amazing opportunity if I get to work with the Navajo Nation Hospital. I, I've heard so many great things uh, about the hospital. I've mostly worked with smaller uh, nations. Uh, uh-huh. So it would be for a, for a good change. Maybe I'll get to work with a bigger nation. 
I, mean, I haven't looked at the demographics lately, but I don't think there is any nation uh, bigger than the Navajo Nation, is there? Uh, I don't think so, yeah. um, from what I know, yeah. Uh, in California, we have 109 federally recognized tribes, uh, 50 that are looking for recognition, 10 terminated. So we have so many smaller nations mm-hmm. and smaller villages right. um, that... Navajo is is a huge step up, you know, as far as population goes. Well, there are folks who want more information about what they can do on the level of cancer prevention. Mm -hmm. They've heard about the uh, National Native Network. I know you gave out some information, but before we finish up, we want you to say just one more time, why would someone contact your group? Why would they go to your website? What are they going to expect to find there? So I would recommend if you want to go look for cancer information, I would highly recommend that you go to Mm -hmm. keepitsacred.org because we are a national group. Um, We understand that there is differences between tribes and we understand that there's local differences and that's what we really want to get to. A lot of bigger organizations don't always provide information or work with local tribes and tribal organizations. And uh, there's a lot of information out there, and you don't always know which is the right information. Mm-hmm. With vaccine, with cancer, you know, with mm-hmm. data, um, our main uh, focus at National Native Network is to decipher and to, to look through that information and make that information easily accessible and easy to read. And that is why, uh, you know, I recommend that we go to keepasacred.org and, you know, find that information. Okay, so it's pretty simple. If I want more information, keepitsacred.org, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you go to the left side of the website, and you can pick a topic, cancer. You can pick commercial tobacco, and then you can learn more about it. There's a lot of webinars, a lot of trainings that we provide, uh, and a lot of education materials that you can print out and uh, provide to the community, at, whether that be a tribal health organization or just a tribe by itself. The main takeaway for me about your website, because I've had other folks from your team on the show, Mm -hmm. even from this venue, is that it's not just a tobacco resource website. You have a broad range, especially of cancer prevention services there at the National Native Network. Yes. We, I want to say, specialize in providing healing and health resources at our website. And our mission expands every single time, you know, we see a different disparity that is brought up in the group and whether that be cancer, commercial tobacco or physical activity, you know, we're always expanding. And uh, that's why we want you to, you know, stay with us and learn more about us and stay healthy and stay healing. Very good. So, Habe, we've got to run. That's Sohabe Arif with the California Rural Indian Health Board and the National Native Network. Thank you for joining us on today's edition of American Indian Living. Hopefully today's show has made a difference in your life. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.